core alone. This week, COVID cases are up, and there's much discussion about what, if anything, the city should do about that. Plus, we now have a plan to protect our public trees, and we've coupled it with a clean energy improvement program. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 144. Like fashion, everything is cyclical and COVID cases are up. And Mac, I really don't want this to become COVID the podcast. I was busy having my best summer ever, (laughs) but I fear that's where we're trending. I'm gunning for that lottery announcement next week. But yeah, it looks like more of the same. And every episode starts the same way as well with a rapid fire segment. Edmonton-based Flair Airlines has expanded the options for those looking to escape Edmonton with new direct flights to Las Vegas, Hollywood, Phoenix, and Palm Springs. In a statement, the Flair CEO said, quote, We're Albertans at heart, so we know how important it is for our customers to finally be able to leave. And we want to support that. In fact, just last week, our very own Premier was on the first flight to... Wait, shoot. Can we cut that? We're off the record, right? To ensure games remain safe and enjoyable for everyone, Rogers Place will have a new screening process for the upcoming season. Before entering, fans will have to prove that they are not fans of the Calgary Flames. This process can either be done via a rapid test about the two teams to confirm full knowledge of the Oilers and no knowledge of the Flames, or through inoculation, applying Oilers bumper stickers to the patron's truck to prevent any Flames paraphernalia from infecting it. Four Albertan universities have banded together to create a competition encouraging youth to make content to convince their peers to get the vaccine. Said the director of health at Concordia University, one of the participating schools, quote, We stan our squad that are chill and woke about jabs. It's V-fire to get double-dosed, a serious mood, hundo P. Make some TikTok clock videos, make them funny so your crew says, I'm dead, but not in the COVID way. I don't know any of those words. <laughs> I, I just imagine Karen listening and then showing it to her daughter and her daughter just like hating it. <laughs> That's probably a good joke then. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by the Business Council of Alberta. Have you ever wondered what goes on inside a CEO's mind or what it's really like to lead a company? C-Suite Unplugged, an Alberta Better podcast series, brings you fresh and honest conversations with Alberta's biggest CEOs, from leaders in energy and finance to tech, innovation, and agriculture, and everything in between. Join host Adam Legg, president of the Business Council of Alberta, for an unplugged conversation with Alberta's leaders about their stories, what keeps them up at night, and their outlook on the future of Alberta. You can find new episodes of C-Suite Unplugged on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also listen at businesscouncilab.com slash Alberta Better Podcast. That's albertacouncilab.com slash Alberta Better Podcast. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. So we mentioned right off the top that we are COVID, the province, once again. I believe earlier in the week, uh, we accounted for a full third of the new COVID cases in Canada, despite Alberta having 12% of the population of Canada. So mm-hmm. kudos to us. We're really mission accomplishing this uh, COVID situation. We're back to over a thousand new cases a day. And Edmonton, the Edmonton zone, is back to the most active cases in the province. Though we're not going 
to talk that much about the provincial handling of the COVID pandemic. Or lack of handling. (laughs) There's none there. We want to talk about the city. And the city is once again in that unenviable position that I recall they were last year, right about when the mask mandate initially got implemented, because the province appears to not want to act at all. Back then, it was because of losing votes or whatever reason. This time, I assume it's because there's a federal election going on. And again, with the losing votes thing. So city council is in that unenviable position of they have to decide what they want to do. And there's been much contention this week about what that should be. Right. At last August, they passed the temporary mandatory face coverings bylaw. And then later they updated it to make the deadline, the the automatic repeal of that, the end of this calendar year. But of course, we know back in June, right for the start of July, council made some amendments to that bylaw to deactivate it. And so what that meant is they made some amendments that changed the bylaw to be aligned with the province's open for summer strategy. And it said, if we are in stage three, then we don't have to have masks on in Edmonton if the province reverts to an earlier stage or if the province puts out a public health order requiring masks, then those automatically mean that we have to wear masks in Edmonton. And it should be noted that they chose that alignment with the province instead of other options that were presented. For example, a vaccination percentage of Edmonton, a number of Edmonton cases, it basically defers to the province entirely for should we re-implement this mask bylaw. That's right. And at the time, Councillor Cartmel, who was one of the people who voted to make that amendment to the bylaw, talked about how the province are the experts here. They have the data, they have the modeling, and we should trust them and we shouldn't be coming up with something on our own when the province are the ones with all that information. He has been blogging this week, of course, that he's upset that the province hasn't released any of their data. So go figure. There were seven people that voted for that uh, amendment. Six councillors voted against it. So it was a pretty contentious vote. And a lot of the discussion I've seen this week has been about You know, if the the city is going to do something, if council is going to once again take action when the province is not, how do they do that, given that half of them voted against it last time? And the ones that are most likely to want to, you know, implement a mask bylaw, Henderson, Walters, Paquette, Iveson, Knack, these are the councillors that lost and voted against that amendment back in June. I think the unfortunate thing with all of this is I don't really have an answer of how this happens. My intuition with something like this, based on how council has previously acted, is that no, none of the people who voted not to pass the amendment, none of the people who were on the side of keeping the mask by law in place are able to relitigate this issue. The rule on council is if you're on the losing side of a motion, you can't move to revisit it uh, until either a year passes or an election happens. So, so that means in this case, it has to be Banga, Esslinger, Cartmel, Hamilton, Katerina, Nickel, or Zadik, who would put a motion forward to say either we want to repeal this amendment or we want to make another amendment to this bylaw. That's right. That's my understanding of the issue. And now I remember we had talked earlier before the show and you said, well, what if council, one of the people who was on the quote unquote losing side, made a motion that said something to the effect of, we want to also instantiate this bylaw and reactivate it. 
whenever cases in Edmonton go above a certain range, say 500 active cases. My thinking there is that like it's not inconceivable that we could add something new to the bylaw that doesn't impact at all that amendment. Everything that was in that amendment still remains in the bylaw, still remains active. We're not relitigating that. We're not opening that back up again. But we add something new to it, another amendment that would allow us to activate the bylaw, you know, separately from those other things. That, to me, seems like a material difference. But you maybe don't think that's the case. I can see both ways of it. And I think the answer to that question would have to go to both the clerks and even further, maybe to the chair of the meeting and then maybe a contested ruling of the chair at council. At the end of the day, council can do whatever council allows itself to do. Mm. But there's two ways that could work out. One, you could say, sure, we're just we're not materially reopening the debate on this. We're just adding an additional amendment to it. But if you set that threshold to something artificially low or below what we currently have, and the effect is that the mask mandate is instantly reactivated it, sure, the mechanism might be slightly different. But what you've effectively done is said, neener, neener, I got the mask mandate back, I win. Right. I assume council decorum is not quite that childish, but, you know, the the point (laughs) still stands. So I would suspect, and we've seen Councillor Knack talk a little bit to that effect, that... The prevailing opinion on council is that one of those initial seven has to be the one to stand up and say enough is enough in order to revisit this. Right. Well, they were originally talking about just doing something about masks on transit. And then, of course, the one thing the province did do is extend their expiry to September 27th. So uh, you still have to wear a mask on public transit and in vehicle for hire until that time, regardless of what council does on Monday, but there is the potential now that they could have someone from the the winning side last time, the prevailing side, make a motion that does bring a mask bylaw back to Edmonton. Masks aren't the only way of combating the COVID pandemic, though, and there was also discussion about other ways to increase our uh, resiliency versus COVID, the most obvious one being the vaccines. And there was discussion this week about potentially mandating vaccines for City of Edmonton staff. Yeah, the city manager, Andre Korbold, said that they're not currently requiring vaccines, but they are encouraging employees to go and get their double doses, of course. Staff have been asked to voluntarily and anonymously disclose if they've been vaccinated so that they can kind of get some idea of what the percentage is. And the reason this is starting to pick up steam is that the city has planned to have everyone back in the offices on September 20th. And so this discussion came up about, first of all, masks, but second of all, you know, should we be requiring people to have vaccinations before they come back to work? And some other places across the country have been doing that, such as uh, Toronto, for instance. It's not really related to this podcast, but it was absolutely absolutely fascinating to me that uh, the Doug Ford government in Ontario has required all of his members of caucus to get vaccines. I think if Doug Ford can do it to politicians in Ontario, anyone can do it anywhere. Yeah, no doubt. And I actually, you know, I think masks are good, obviously. They're a very simple thing that anybody can do. You can put on a mask and you can protect other people. But I would not at this point want to see masks in favor of vaccine mandates. I think what we really need to do is get our vaccination rates up to the 90% plus that the experts say we now need to properly combat Delta and other potential variants. And, And having vaccine mandates in place seemed like a really effective tool to help us do that. 
We don't quite have those mandates in place, and who knows if we will, but one mandate in place for the protection of some of our living things in Edmonton was the tree bylaw. We had talked about this in the past, that uh, city council was looking to protect their uh, public tree assets. We talked about this on our episode of with Dustin Bajer as well. And, and this week, it seems to have passed, at least committee. And we now have a bylaw on the table that could protect our public trees. Yeah, when this first came up back in uh, May, you'll recall that the discussion was all about how onerous and unfair it was for organizations like EPCOR and the telecommunications companies and infill developers to to have to do this. EPCOR alone estimated that the previous uh, proposal would require 8,000 permits a year and cost them thousands of dollars. Now, EPCOR has thousands of dollars, so maybe that's not such such a big issue. And to put this into context, we're talking about just the city's public trees. These are the trees that are on public land on boulevards. This is a small fraction of the number of trees we have in Edmonton. And it's not even close to the number of trees that we need to be planting, according to city plan, to get to our climate change goals by 2050. So this is like a very, very minor step. If we can't even protect the boulevard trees, what does that say about all of the other things we need to do for our urban forest? But anyway, at that time, Kimity sent it back to administration, said, go figure out how to solve this problem. And they came back uh, with this new proposed bylaw, which, as you said, committee endorsed. They doubled the fines to $1,000. They introduced a blanket permit for utility and telecom companies for emergency work. Uh, and they made some other small changes to attempt to make the bylaw a little more palatable for those who were opposed originally. The main change that helped is that blanket permit that you option. So basically, when a utility or telecommunication company is doing emergency maintenance work, the tree permit wouldn't have to be applied for individually. It has carte blanche to sort of go through and do what it will and perform that emergency maintenance. However, that's not completely free for all. Council also recommended that 10% of these be inspected. So, you know, it's go do what you will. We trust you, but we'll verify it. Yeah. And and there's a cost associated with that, obviously. And so they're proposing, you know, $300 per permit, which would help generate some revenue, maybe as much as $620,000. But essentially, committee uh, recommended that they direct administration to bring back a budget proposal. So they said, you know, we like this bylaw, this will protect the trees, we got to figure out how to fund it. One of the ways we might do that is you know, doubling the fines and other ways, charging for something, and you have to do some enforcement. So you have to bring us back some budget options so that in the fall, when the budget comes up, we can decide how much money do we want to put behind this protection of the trees that we have now endorsed. And I think it's worth noting exactly what these permits are, because it's not just sort of money exchanging hands for no reason. There's actually some material work that goes along with this. So in order to get a permit, the applicant needs to submit a tree protection plan where they lay out where protective fencing will be installed, where temporary crossing access will be, and exactly how the trees will be protected during construction. So it is, you know, ensuring that good things and reasonable things happen during construction that we would want to happen. So it's not just a pure piece of bureaucracy. Right. However, like you said, this is such a small fraction of the trees we want to plant to be in alignment with our city plan and climate change goals. I don't 
know how well this scales. Like permitting is not a process that scales very well, in my view. No, I don't think permits do scale well, and neither does the way that we enforce things in the city, which is complaint-based, right? I mean, it remains to be seen how effective this will be. It's not like there was a huge number of problem sites. Uh, The report already talked about that um, when the bylaw first came forward. So, I mean, it is a positive thing that we are you know, drawing a line in the sand here and saying we're going to protect trees, but we need to do a lot more to really achieve the kind of outcomes we're looking for. This alone is a drop in the bucket. Speaking of wanting to do more, we always have to do more to achieve our climate change goals because as we've seen with UN modeling in the past couple of weeks, even our most ambitious Paris Agreement targets are not quite enough to do all that we need to do to really save the planet. Edmonton at least is making more strides. And this week we got a update on a two-year pilot for the Clean Energy Improvement Program. Yes, of course it's a pilot. Even though we're putting $12.4 <laughs> million into it, it's a pilot. This is a program that will allow homeowners and organizations to benefit from some funding to make energy improvements to their existing properties. And The significance of that is that the city's Energy Transition and Climate Resilience Advisory Committee estimates that about 80% of the buildings that we'll use in 2050 are already built. So it's not enough to just build new things more efficiently. We also need to make some retrofits to the buildings we already have to make them more energy efficient. And that's what this program is intended to do in in a small way. We're talking about 80 residential properties and 20 commercial properties that this pilot will fund. And we don't even know what kind of greenhouse gas emissions we're going to save from this pilot, but it's a positive thing, I guess, in that we are starting to recognize that, you know, it's not enough to just build new green things. We've got to deal with the the building stock we already have as well. It wasn't really until I read that this week that it clicked to me, you know, most of what we have built, this is what we have. We have to make the best of it. So I thought that was a really fascinating addition and really, I think, helped sell the pilot. Mm-hmm. The other thing I really liked about this is, like you said, it's 80 residential and 20 commercial properties. Giving a number for how much, because essentially this is a rebate program. Yeah. And very much like the e-bike rebate program that, you know, had way more applicants than it could ever pay out. I appreciate that they're giving a number here. We're not going to get, you know, thousands of residential properties applying and then halfway through the city saying, ah, sorry, we're out of money. Having this number up front, I think, is very helpful and probably will make the program function much better. Yeah, it's a good sign. And hopefully it is, as uh, the mayor described it, a proof of concept and that they can have additional rebate programs and other retrofit programs in the future. The city is actually not paying for that much of this. It's 12.4 million, but only 2.1 of that comes from the city. And the rest of it is coming, most of the rest of it is coming from FCM, the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So this is a good way to get some money from elsewhere to prove that this really can make a difference in the hopes that city council might choose to fund something like this themselves in the future or to expand this program uh, to to address, you know, a larger number of buildings than the hundreds that are in this. But I agree with you having a, a breakdown like that, some targets kind of setting those expectations up front, it means it's more likely that this pilot will be a success. Nothing in Edmonton says success better than opening a cannabis store. And this one is a little (laughs) bit of a light one, but I love Taproot's chart of the week because every week it's a chart 
it's perfect. It very, very well-named series that you've got going on there. It's literally what it is. Yep. It was a chart of the week for cannabis licenses. And I knew Edmonton, of course, had an absurd number of cannabis stores. I look out my window and I could easily walk in under five minutes to, I think, four or five different cannabis stores. And I'm not even downtown. But it looks like the city of Edmonton is making it even easier to open up a cannabis store. Yeah, we have issued 151 cannabis retail licenses since 2018, 244 development permits, like hundreds. What that really means is that Alberta has more stores per 100,000 people than anywhere else in the country except for maybe the Yukon. So if you want to buy cannabis, Alberta and Edmonton are the place to do it. We didn't talk about this last week, but what council did was decide to uh, drop the license fees. And it's significant. Now the business license fees to run a cannabis retail store, instead of being $2,500, are just 255 and even less for a renewal. So that's a significant drop. And you asked before the show, like, what, what, why would we do that if we have so many stores? What is the rationale for that? And I don't have a good answer for that. But Councillor McKean, who apparently is the chairman of the Edmonton Cannabis Coalition. It makes sense that Councillor McKean would have that position. Just putting yeah. that out there. <laughs> he said that this is potentially a way to deal with the black market. Apparently, there's still, even amidst all of this legal cannabis, a thriving black market. Uh, to make it easier to set up even more pot shops is how they're going to address that, evidently. I don't buy that. We already have enough stores that I think anyone who doesn't want to use the black market doesn't have to. And I also am not completely convinced that the business license fee mm -hmm. is the big deal breaker when you're opening a pot shop. I feel like there's a lot of other costs associated with it, but you know, I'm not opposed to undue taxes. And part of me feels like that $2,500 number was, you recall when we were legalizing cannabis, the EPS said something absurd about they needed a massive amount oh, yeah. of money to police legalized cannabis. I have to assume this $2,500 partially cost recovery on that absurd estimate. <laughs> or even, even just the f excitement and optimism about the cannabis market back in 2018 when it was about to be legalized was just through the roof. And I could see them setting a really high you know, license fee just as a way to sort of um, dampen that excitement and to, you know, make it a manageable number of cannabis stores. And, and maybe now it's just we're a few years on, the market has started to mature, cannabis sales haven't been as crazy as people thought they would be. Let's not charge an exorbitant cost anymore. We can make it something more normal. Yeah, we unfortunately haven't been able to replace oil revenue with cannabis revenue, which no. people were projecting that, right? Yeah. And I mean, like, to me, it made sense. In terms of my friend group, more people smoke cannabis than drink oil. I just think <laughs> like it's, it's a no brainer. <laughs> That's true. I believe that. <laughs> Speaking of feeling like you're drinking oil, let's get to the municipal election <laughs> rundown. I am tired of the municipal election, but unfortunately, we've got another one going and we're just ramping up on the municipal election. And you can tell because the rundown gets bigger. Yes, it's longer every week. It's longer. And I think this week we start with some of the mayoral candidates. So you had Michael Oshry. He was 
expressing support for the clean energy improvement pilot program. And he called it, quote, bold yet practical thinking. He also called on the city to host a mayoral debate and ask his fellow candidates to support his letter and write their own. Um, I think we gave our takes on Mm -hmm. the value of the mayoral debate. Um, the, The interesting thing also is because this is an interesting mayoral debate, it's not just Iveson and his effective losers. Um, We've seen a lot of mayoral debates. I don't think there's been a shortage of mayoral debates. I haven't watched most of them, and there have been tons. Yeah, and there's only more. There's lots planned coming up over the next couple of months. So, Well, and I think the one that's being organized, uh, at least in part by Punita, who came on the show and talked about the DBA, is actually in Ford Hall, which... Got to say that's the best usage of Ford Hall. It'll be good to see them in Ford Hall. I'm not sure about the way that they're planning to go about that. Only the people that rank highest in polling completed the end of August will be invited to that. You would think as the Downtown Business Association, you'd want to invite people specifically to talk about the things that are important to you, not just the people that are you know, doing well in polls, because we all know how accurate polls are. Perhaps that is encouraging a particular candidate who also was suggesting only high-ranking candidates should be invited to participate. But something tells me that Mike Nickel won't be showing up to that debate. Yeah, I don't know why he would start now. He hasn't been to any of the others. (laughs) So he has been busy, though. He had a rally recently, a rally for Edmonton, he called it, and had over 500 people, apparently. And You can see the video that he shared. It does look like there was an awful lot of people there. Some people were criticizing him for, you know, the lack of masks and having that many people without proper social distancing. Not things I think Mike Nichols is going to care about. But he clearly has a growing number of supporters. And we've talked before on the show about how many Mike Nichols signs there are around town. He seems to be doing an effective job at making it at least look like his campaign is attracting a lot of support. There's definitely a couple of our listeners ripping off their headphones and yelling, Troy, Mac, why are you doing this to me? Why are you talking about Mike Nickel? I think it is important that we talk about him because Mike Nickel is a factor in this election. I think he will absolutely lose. I'll go on record saying that. But he's not going to get a distant 17th place. Uh, He does have a significant amount of supporters. And I think it's wrong in the same way that it was wrong to discredit Rob Ford in Toronto and other populist candidates. Some a little bit of healthy fear is is healthy. Yeah, we shouldn't pretend that he's going to lose outright and have no support when very clearly the evidence shows that's not true. We shouldn't bury our head in the sands here. Another election that will be happening with our municipal election is one that doesn't matter and one that we should ignore, and that's the Senate elections. This is going to be put alongside our referendum on daylight savings time and equalization and whatever else the UCP wants to throw on at that time of day, and we're going to elect our municipal candidates and our school board candidates and our mayors. But there will also be this Albertan farce of the senator-in-waiting elections. Mm -hmm. We elect a person who we say, pretty please, Justin Trudeau, appoint this person to the Senate, to which he says, no, that's not how any of this works, and life goes on. But I thought it was super interesting because while we're doing these Senate elections, which you know, really show the value of democracy and showing that Albertans really want an elected Senate and rah, 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 let's pump up (laughs) democracy. There's not going to be the ability to vote in the Senate election on any reserves. No, that's right. The provincial government confirmed that anybody living on a reserve or those in summer villages, special areas, improvement areas, 
even people on the Alberta side of Lloyd Minister, all of them will need to travel to the nearest municipality or vote by mail if they want to have an opportunity to vote on this. And as you can imagine, uh, First Nations groups in the province very quickly denounced that uh, news and called it brazen disenfranchisement. If you want to protest this, uh, feel free to vote Duncan Kinney for your Senate election candidate. He's the only Senate election candidate who is openly mocking the process, which... Absolutely. Admirable. Admirable work. Thank you, Duncan. Elections are things where candidates come to your door. Things that also might come to your door if you order them are subscription food boxes. And today's episode is brought to you by Bessie Box. It delivers healthy, naturally raised meat and seafood right to your door. Bessie is a small team in Alberta that delivers local food straight from the farm to you. You can choose Alberta grass-fed and finished ground beef or sustainable Atlantic salmon from BC. You can order on your schedule, whether it's one time or on a regular subscription, and it's all conveniently flash frozen and portioned, so you always have healthy meat and seafood ready to cook up a storm. You can go to BessieBox.com to order yours now. And plus, exclusive for APN listeners, you can use this promo code APN10 to save 10% off your order. That's APN10. Enter it on checkout at BessieBox.com to save 10% off your first order of all this meat and seafood. And oh boy, um... I was really ramping up and I, I ran out of I, <laughs> I ran out of where coffee. You're going yeah. Thank you, Bessie Box, for sponsoring this podcast. There's no promo code required to subscribe to Speaking Municipally. We come back to you every week in your favorite podcast app. So just go ahead and click that subscribe button or that check mark button or whatever button it is in that app you like to use. And if there's stars or a review function, we'd love one of those too. You can just like tweet me at, or send me an email, say Thanks, Troy. I like the show. I like to hear that. You can also email Mac, but that doesn't benefit me as much. I <laughs> live off your accolades. But of course, the easiest thing you can do is just come back every week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.